Welcome, welcome, welcome to the third installment, the long-awaited third installment of The Dirt on Earth, and I am so glad that you waited with bated breath for us. Hopefully, it will be well worth the wait. We are going to start our series on the autobiography of Earth today, but it's not going to be what I said before. Um, before I told you that we're going to start with the Hadean Eon and over the series of several episodes, we're going to make our way up to recent and then beyond recent. No, we're not doing that because I want to start at the beginning and the Hadean Eon is not the beginning. Hush, I know what I'm talking about. The Earth didn't start at the Hadean Eon. The Earth started when little micron-sized particles accreted. They came together and clumped and started building a planet. But that's not the beginning either. Because essentially, the Earth is made out of stuff. So what this whole show, this whole intro to the autobiography of Earth, let's consider it the um, the prologue to the autobiography of Earth. This episode is called Before the Hadean Eon. Today is dedicated to just talking about what causes the universe to cough up a planet in the first place. Okay, so I think one of the fundamental ideas that we have to have drilled into our head is that a star and a planet are the same thing. I know our instincts tell us that they're two completely different things. You've got this big, hot, glowing, massive, glowing plasma ball that's just churning out all this energy. And then you've got this cold, hard planet, tiny in comparison. See, everything's the same thing. The only difference between the star and the planet is the range of pressures and temperatures of that system. The whole solar system is a system, but each planet, each moon, these are all systems within systems. They're all self-contained systems. And those systems are defined largely by their ranges of pressure and temperature. So the range of pressure and temperature on and in the sun is so different from that which is on and in the earth that they appear to be two different things. But we're all looking at the same matter We're just looking at different states of matter. So essentially when we're talking about stuff and we're talking about the evolution of stuff, we're talking about how pressures and temperatures, gradients, have caused the evolution of all that stuff. This does not mean that everything is this one big homogenous soup where everything is evenly distributed. You're going to have higher concentrations of different varieties of stuff in different places. So with all that said, we're about to just jump right into the very beginning. The beginning of stuff means going to the Big Bang, and we are going to root ourselves in the Big Bang Theory. This is the prevailing cosmological model. Should it change anytime soon, I will be the first person to let you know about that. And this is basically the prevailing theory that says that the universe began. All of the matter of the universe was condensed in this infinitely small, infinitely dense, infinitely hot state, somewhere around 13.8 billion years ago. Eventually, it all just became the universe. And the hilarious thing about that is how it's broken up into little, the tiniest fractions of seconds, the first one being Planck era or Planck epoch. And of course, with Planck, he says that time is not continuous, but rather is quantized, and that there's a smallest unit of time. And that smallest unit of time is 10 to the minus 43 seconds. Anyway, so... Apparently, in that first 10 to the negative 43 seconds, you had, okay, you ever go to Ikea, you're on the showroom floor, you see a dresser or a table or something you want, you say, okay, yeah, that's what I want. 
Somebody throws a box into the back of your car, you drive home, you open the box, you dump out its contents, and it's just a mangled pile of parts and fasteners, and it's waiting for you to put them together. Well, that's what general relativity, that's what quantum mechanics, then the the four fundamental forces were all indistinct at that point. They were essentially that pile of stuff that had yet to assemble. And actually, you know what? No discussion about the Big Bang is complete without a quick review of the four fundamental forces. So let's knock that out of the way. We're going to be talking about gravity, um, electromagnetism, and the weak and strong nuclear force. So quickly covering these really quick. Gravity, this is the force that we're most familiar with. Of course, we know that objects, that it's mass dependent. So objects with mass pull each other together. And the greater that mass is, the, the smaller the distance between the two masses, the stronger the gravitational force. And I have run out of things to say about gravity. So I'm going to move on to electromagnetism. This is the force that governs uh, the binding of electrons to the nuclei of atoms. It's, this is what creates molecules and basically allows matter to form. So electricity and magnetism are essentially two uh, components to the same unified concept, so they follow uh, many of the same basic rules. For example, opposites attract, like repels, and their dynamics, how these two forces interact, is what governs the behavior of charged particles. So we're going to move on to the weak nuclear force. Actually, I want to talk about the strong nuclear force first, since it actually precedes it. So protons, like I was just saying about opposites attract and likes repelling, protons obviously have like charges, and yet they still have to exist within the cozy confines of an atomic nucleus. So the strong nuclear force is what overcomes the Coulomb force that wants to scatter them and push them away from each other. So we get protons and neutrons hugging it out in the nucleus, and that keeps the atoms together. Okay, so then we have, uh, let's see, the weak nuclear force. The overall job of the weak nuclear force is to manage this... um, this ratio between protons and neutrons within the nucleus. If that becomes implausible, then the nucleus becomes unstable. Radioactive decay becomes inevitable because it always wants to reach a stable configuration where it's at its lowest energy state. And to accomplish that, well, it turns out protons and neutrons are a lot more flexible than we thought. They've agreed that if it comes down to it, a proton will just take one for the team and become a neutron, or a neutron will just say, hey, no problem, I'll become a proton. And that's how radioactive decay happens. One of them is beta minus decay, and that's when a neutron becomes a proton. And then there's beta plus decay, and that's when a proton becomes a neutron. So you emit some radiation, and then you get these beta particles, positrons. They come with neutrinos. That's your beta plus decay. Beta minus decay is when you get an electron that's coupled with an anti-neutrino, the electron being the beta minus particle. Okay, and remember also that, well, the proton is what defines the element. So if this process changes the number of neutrons, then you get a change in the isotope. But if it changes the number of protons, the actual element changes. Radioactive decay. Okay, so that brings us to nucleosynthesis. Nucleosynthesis being nothing more than the process that brings elements into existence. There's several different types. I'm going to go in order of their appearance in the cosmos. Big Bang Nucleosynthesis. Okay, so it's Big Bang Nucleosynthesis that gave rise to the universe's first elements, hydrogen and helium. 
tiny traces of lithium and what was what's number four beryllium and that's it you essentially had a universe filled with hydrogen and helium and 200 million years later the first generation of stars emerged and they were made out of all there was hydrogen and helium and that made them massive because it turns out that heavier elements elements that are heavier than helium have an effect well here's here's an analogy you ever see those people who get to be like nine feet tall and it's because there's some sort of, there's a fault in some gene that affects their pituitary gland and it, and, and it, it stops the gene from sending that signal that says, okay, you can stop growing now. Well, that's what not having heavier elements does to a star. It actually, it lacks the gene that tells them to stop growing. So these stars became massive. Massive is such a weird word to use for stars because I think stars by definition are massive. So let's just go ahead and call these guys ultra massive. And so these first generation stars were not just massive, depending on which estimates you believe, tens, hundred, thousand times more massive than our sun. Since they were so big, they burned bright and they burned fast. They died out over a few million years. Some of them didn't even last a million years. There's no way planets were forming. You didn't have rocky planets because you didn't have rocks. You couldn't even form gas planets. There were no planets. So we're going to quickly go over the nuclear fusion or the stellar nucleosynthesis. That is the nucleosynthesis that happens within the core of the star. Essentially, this is what powers the star. So two hydrogen nuclei, two protons, they get close enough together. They want to repel, but the strong nuclear force takes over and knocks their heads together, and they will fuse into a single particle, a deuteron. That is a nucleon that contains one proton and one neutron. Where did the other proton go? Beta decay. Remember beta decay? And that releases a lot of energy. So a proton will collide with that deuteron, and that results in a helium-3. We're almost there, but not quite. So then your helium-3 nucleus will collide with another helium-3 nucleus, and that will form helium-4 plus two extra protons that can go off and start the process all over again. That final step, that is the full conversion of hydrogen to helium that releases an enormous amount of energy. And this is what powers the sun's luminosity. This is what gives us sunshine. Just as importantly, this is what gives us helium-4, which is the product that then goes on to fuse heavier elements. So that whole process, stellar nucleosynthesis, That is what's happening during the period of a star's life known as the main sequence. So the longer a star lives, the more time it has to produce these heavier elements. But remember, when the hydrogen is gone, it's all over with. Stars can't fuse beyond iron because fusing beyond iron is not a process that releases energy. It actually requires energy. It's an endothermic process. And this is why your average star is not going to produce anything higher than iron Your massive, massive, massive stars might get as high as nickel during this process, but essentially what ends up happening is the star starts to die. And when it's in its death throes, it's run out of hydrogen. So the hydrostatic equilibrium is no longer balanced. And even though it's ejecting its its outer layers, the dense core is collapsing and it, it raises the temperature and pressure. It's only during the dying phase that you're going to get stars producing elements that are heavier than iron. Okay, so then we're going to talk about the next type of nucleosynthesis, and this is what's called explosive nucleosynthesis, or supernova nucleosynthesis. This is going to get us elements between, a lot of elements between oxygen and rubidium, 
plus all the elements that were produced during stellar nucleosynthesis, because with all these elements being produced in the core, it's still locked in the core. They don't get released into the interstellar medium until the star explodes, until it ejects the material into the cosmos. So with supernova nucleosynthesis, that process that I was describing earlier of how hydrogen turns into helium, that's what's known as the proton-proton chain. Um, There are various different types. You have the CNO, carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. That's another stellar nucleosynthesis process. There are different types of processes. For supernova nucleosynthesis, something that has that much energy, those high temperatures, that kicks off a whole different type of nucleosynthesis. This is where you get into neutron capture. And there are two different kinds. You have the R process, which means rapid. You have the S process, which means slow. And supernova explosions are very energetic. Particles are moving at super, super, supersonic speed. So you're getting a lot of those R process, the uh, absorption of multiple neutrons at one time. You're also getting some of the slow processes. Some of them are just doing one little neutron at a time. But those are where you start getting deeper into the periodic table. Now, we still haven't gotten to a lot of the elements that are in the 70s, 80s, and 90s on the periodic table. We're talking about the naturally occurring elements. There are 92 of them. Endothermic events, and they require extraordinarily high temperatures. Not only that, but in order to build plutonium and and gold and, and, you know, platinum and uranium, you need a lot of neutrons. And protons really have neutrons outnumbered as far as abundance by a significant amount. But there are places where you have high concentrations of neutrons because neutrons are manufactured, for lack of a better word, under very high pressure conditions. Electrons with negative charges and protons with positive charges fuse and their charges cancel out and they become the particle known as a neutron. This happens when an extremely massive star collapses into what would then be called a neutron star because that process took place. So when two neutron stars merge, that is one of the more explosive and energetic events there are. So the neutron stars are giving you plenty of neutrons to create those heavy elements that have ridiculous numbers of isotopes. And then last but not least, these are the nucleosynthesis processes that I'm aware of. If somebody knows of other ones, you know, that's fine. I'm not the flying Walindas up here, right? I, I don't want to do this without a net. I'm, I'm relying on you guys to be my net. Do not hesitate to get onto info at the dirt on earth.com and say, yo, Demetria, you know, you said this, that, and the other, but it's actually X, Y, and Z. I will be the first one. Do back my background due diligence. Say, oh, you know what? That guy's right. Boom. I'm on the air next time or I'm on the website as soon as possible correcting it. The other option that I know of for nucleosynthesis is cosmic ray spallation. This is a process where cosmic rays impact nuclei and they fragment them, they split them. Cosmic rays are crazy. Cosmic rays are these energetic particles that are just zipping through space at nearly the speed of light. They are the only particles to get so close to the speed of light that you can virtually say they travel the speed of light. We're talking like 99.9% of the speed of light. Even though they're very small, when they impact things, because remember, force equals mass times acceleration. So when something's got some mass, because it's not like a photon where it has no mass. <laughs> so when something has mass and the acceleration is, is virtually the speed of light, 
there's a lot of force there. And so those will actually split atoms. So that will take a large nucleus and split it up into small uh, uh, nucleuses. So you'll get a lot of helium-3 isotopes, beryllium-9, um, boron-9 and 10. Largely, these are created by these cosmic ray spallations. So all the first generation stars, they did all their nucleosynthesis. They went and spewed all their material into the interstellar medium. That brought us second generation stars that eventually scooped them up. So second generation stars, they did all their, their uh, stellar nucleosynthesis. Many of them are still around, by the way, but many of them went nova. All their nucleosynthesis processes produced a lot more of even heavier elements, which brought population one or third generation stars onto the scene. And that's what brings us to the sun. And I think that that is a good place to end off because in our next segment, our first guest is from the European Southern Observatory. And she's going to come on and talk about solar system formation because that's going to be the theme of segment two of this show. Yeah, just go ahead, stick around. This is The Dirt on Earth with your host, Demetria Lynn. We still have plenty of ground to cover. So welcome back to The Dirt on Earth, our second segment of our third installment titled Before the Hadean Eon. This is a forensic investigation into the stuff that Earth is made of. So we're going to pick up where we left off. We made it to the third generation or population one stars, which includes our sun. So most of our attention from here on out will be on the solar system. So I know I've been talking a lot about populations and I want to really quickly go over that. Stars are sorted into populations based on a property called metallicity. Now, it turns out that astronomers regard any element heavier than helium as a metal for this purpose. And metallicity concerns the total abundance of all those heavier elements. This is the indicator of a star's age, its history, its origin. And based on all of this, our sun meets the criteria of a third generation or population one star. So let's go back 4.6 billion years ago. It began as a dense spinning molecular cloud of particles of dust molecules, which would eventually collapse under its own gravity. Gravity began pulling these particles toward the cloud's core. This drew in more and more mass closer to its axis of rotation over time, causing it to spin faster. I'm sure you're picturing that figure skater. While this is going on, centrifugal force is flattening out all the material that's outside of the core. Now you're imagining the spinning pizza dough. And this marked the beginning of our solar system's protoplanetary disk era. So when you look at the solar system today, you see that a pattern emerged, right? You don't see different types of planets all jumbled up. There seems to be an arrangement. Small, solid, rocky planets occupying the inner solar system, then two enormous gas giants, followed by two smaller ice giants. Why is it like that? Back to pressure and temperature. So when we're talking about space, we're talking about negligible pressure. And this keeps the volatile compounds like water from condensing to any phase other than vapor without reaching extremely low 
temperatures. Once the core reaches a certain temperature, it begins to emit radiation. Initially, just very low frequency infrared radiation. But when you're these little tiny light molecules of water, of methane, of CO2, that's all you really need to get a lot of momentum to start blowing these particles out to the icy outer regions. Think about how far you can throw a tennis ball versus how far you can throw a bowling ball. These lighter particles were very easily blown to the outer solar system, but the heavier ones like metal, like rock, they didn't get the same amount of momentum. So eventually the inner solar system became enriched with the rocks and the metals, while the outer solar system became more enriched in the lighter elements, the water molecules, the methane, carbon dioxide, that sort of stuff. This minimal distance from the core for water to begin to precipitate into ice crystals has a name. It's called the frost line. So the moment these molecules hit that distance, that was when they were able to turn into ice. Each volatile compound has its own freezing point. So there's such a thing as a methane frost line. There's such a thing as a, an ammonia frost line. These lie beyond the orbit of Saturn. So lo and behold, you look out beyond Saturn, oh look, you got two planets, and guess what? Their compositions are largely methane and ammonia. Go figure. Rocks and minerals were accreting in the outer solar system too. They would eventually become the rocky cores of the gas giants. Astronomers think the accretion of planets started not with gravity pulling these little tiny particles together, but rather electrostatic charges between them. Think about any time you've thrown one of those budget birthday parties. You didn't have helium balloons, so you just blew up the regular balloons and then rubbed them on your clothes really hard and built up a static charge, and then you were able to just stick them all over the walls without any adhesive. That's the principle. These little particles just started to clump in space like that. Eventually, they would build up enough mass, gravity would enter the chat, and then it would take over the accretion process. You've got yourself a planet. While that evolution is happening, the core of this disk is also evolving. As it's evolving and growing and and heating and gaining more density and mass, it is starting to slam this disk with high energy beams of radiation. So now we're looking at our visible light, ultraviolet, gamma rays. And this was during the time that the Hadean Eon began on Earth. When I think about the Hadean Eon, it's that one part of the geologic timescale that I'm always thinking more about the state of the solar system than Earth itself. Because remember, this was a very chaotic adolescent solar system during the Hadean. The planet was interacting with massive, discordant bodies. This is why they call it the Hadean. Think about it. It was hot. It was unstable. It was loud. It was under, can you imagine how loud it must have been? It was under persistent threat of annihilation. I'm not being a drama queen. The solar system was still very much a hard hat area during the Hadean. Even though by this point, most of the massive objects had already accreted into planets and moons with their distinct orbits and, you know, they were relatively stable. There were still objects with planet vaporizing masses and very dangerous trajectories persisting. I know you think I'm being over the top, but we're actually going to discuss one of these objects in particular in our near future episode called the Hadean Eon. (music) 
that whole planet forming process, that chaotic and violent process, when it was all over, it had yielded 250, 300 different mineral species that would constitute the fundamental building blocks from which all the rocky planets took shape. Here we are today and you look at Earth and there's about 5,000 minerals on Earth today. But the other rocky planets, they're still stuck at those lower numbers. So something's going on on Earth that's not going on on those planets. And I can't wait to start talking about all that. But right now we're still where we are. But that is a really bold claim if you think about it. Like, how do you know? Did someone get into a time machine with a hand lens and a rock hammer and travel 4.54 billion years back, chip away at the planetesimals and start counting all the minerals? I mean, who has a time machine? I tell you who has a time machine, astrochemists. These are the people who study isotopic compositions of meteorites. And folks, I got to tell you, we are living in the golden age of meteoritics right now. If you're like me, you are paying close attention to real examples from the asteroid Bennu. And we're actually going to round out this show with an interview with an astrochemist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. And he's going to be talking about the OSIRIS-REx mission, among other things in the realm of meteorite studies. Please be sure to stick around for that. But right now, we're going to have our first guest on. She's helping to piece together how our solar system evolved. She's joining us from the European Southern Observatory, Marie-Lise Aru is a gifted researcher. She's also very active in space exploration, outreach, and communication. She writes these very insightful articles in an online newsletter on Substack. I have a link to that on thedirtonearth.com. So without further ado, we're going to welcome Marie-Lise Aru. Marie-Lise, it's an honor to have you on our show. Before we get started on your research, though, I want you to give us a little bit of your background. I understand that your position with the ESO is a doctoral candidate. So can you take us through your education and what it is that led you to such a coveted position? So my academic path started out with a bachelor's degree in physics. And I studied in the University of Tartu in Estonia. I enrolled there because I was already very interested in space. And I just imagined physics to be like a very straightforward way to make this connection with astronomy later on. So I looked up different programs in Europe and I found one in the University of Liège, which is in the French-speaking part of Belgium. Uh, I did this master in space sciences program. So then I was able to focus more specifically on astrophysics. So it's funny, like there are these phases of two to three years and in the end of each phase, I had the question of what will I do next? And the more traditional like next step after the master's would have been to do a PhD. But I ended up having this advertisement about positions in the European Space Agency. And this sounded amazing. So while I was applying to PhD positions, I also applied to that position there. They, they mostly had engineering but I did come across one position in astrophysics. <laughs> I went for it. Uh, so I ended up being part of this position for young master's graduates at ESA, so which is the abbreviation of the European Space Agency. Uh, it was an amazing two years of carrying out research there. I was actually focused on a very different topic from what I do now. Uh, I focused on uh, very small particles in the solar system and studying how they impacted the Gaia spacecraft. 
then I picked it up from the time of my master's and I started to apply to PhD positions again. So that's how I ended up in Germany. And I'm currently working at the European Southern Observatory. Very nice. So I've, I've got a link to the website for the European Southern Space Observatory on the dirtonearth.com. But I just kind of want to give wanted you to tell us briefly who the ESO is and what part of the world are you operating from? Yeah, sure. It's a European organization for astronomical research. It has facilities both in Germany and Chile. So the skies are exceptionally clear and dry, the deserts of Chile. And that's where ESO has been operating one of the world's most advanced astronomical observatories. Also, the telescope where my data uh, comes from or where my data has been collected from is located there. Okay, so now we're going to get into the juicy part where we're discussing your research. So I know that you study protoplanetary disks somewhere out there in the Milky Way galaxy. That's a pretty wide, um, that's a pretty wide net to cast. So I guess, first of all, I'd like to find out there are so many stars out there. Which ones in particular are you looking at and why? And the way I told the story of planetary formation, it's very fairy tale very, you know, the princess lived happily ever after. But, uh, I guess it's not necessarily a given. Sometimes the prince doesn't slay the dragon, the dragon slays the prince. And so kind of start us off on, you know, maybe some of the um, the challenges that planetary formation is up against during this stage of planet development. Okay. The closest planet forming disks are found in star forming regions with low overall UV radiation, and they have been studied more in depth. But the disks that I'm focusing on lie in the Orion Nebula cluster. When it comes to these clusters of stars, uh, there can be very bright and massive stars. And we call them O and B type stars. So they're the most bright and most massive. And in that case, there is this impinging UV radiation from the massive stars, which affects how the disks evolve. And as part of my PhD project, I'm trying to understand the extent of this effect. So when we imagine this uh, UV radiation from a massive star, it reaches the outer parts of the disk and it interacts with the gas and dust there. And the radiation heats up the gas. So when it becomes hot enough, some of it turns into vapor and there is the process of ionization happening. So when the gas gets very hot, it also expands. Eventually, gas escapes from the disk into space together with it, some of the dust particles as well. So basically, if you imagine the radiation eroding a disk over time, we can create an example of the wind eroding rocks here on Earth. It's kind of the similar effect over time. And as more and more of this gas escapes from the disk, it means that the protoplanetary disk loses material. This means in turn, there is less material available for the planets to form in this system. So we're taking the material away over time in these kind of clusters. So what does this mean in terms of the ultimate fate of this planetary system? If it's undergoing this, I think the, uh, the term for this is photo evaporation. What, what are the consequences? What, what are we looking at? Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What's going on? So there are multiple ways this effect can affect the design of the final planetary system. If there is less material for the planets to form, then it may be more challenging for the gas giants to form. 
and the rocky planets such as the earth they might form but they could be rarer or they could have like a different composition in the end and there is also the option that the photoevaporation dissipates the disk before any planet formation is complete then the system would end up with no planets and yeah so this is also one possible outcome one of the questions I like to ask guests is specifically about the technology that they use in their research. That's one of the things I'm most fascinated with. And I think when you have people who perhaps are looking to get into these types of fields, it gives them an idea of what they're going to be working with. So kind of take us through your technology side of your research. My data is collected with the VLT, which is... Uh, <laughs> Now we're coming to this one passion of astronomers, which is acronyms. And VLT stands for the Very Large Telescope, which is a very down-to-the-point name <laughs> because it, it is indeed very large. Some of these acronyms really cracked me up. But um, VLT is actually made up of four individual telescopes, and they do can also work together as in a team. My data comes from one of them. Wait, exactly how big are they? Eight-meter diameter mirror. On this uh, telescope, there is a special tool that was used in this project to observe the disks, and it's called MUSE, which is another acronym, <laughs> of course. It's an instrument that's, uh, that's attached to, to one of the telescopes. What's really amazing about MUSE is that it helps astronomers see not only what the objects look like, but also how they're moving and what they're made of, because it combines both the imaging capabilities and also spectroscopy. It uses a technology called adaptive optics. Basically, it's a method to compensate the blurring effect of the Earth's atmosphere. And the art of adaptive optics has been developed so that we can now acquire these incredibly sharp, detailed images. And in some cases, they can even look better than the ones obtained by the Hubble Space Telescope, for example. Okay, so we have listeners who are considering or looking to enter grad school at some point, I'm actually included in that crowd of people. What advice do you have, not just at the master's level, but even considering the PhD level, because I know that that's a tremendous commitment. And I know that it's not for everybody. So what would you say to someone who's considering entering that realm of higher education? Since a PhD can be quite a challenging position, especially if it's, for example, abroad or in a state like far from your friends and family, I think it's important to be, of course, very passionate about the field. It would make these challenges worthwhile because it's easy to basically get lost in all of the details. So you're working on these extremely specific issues on a daily basis. And sometimes you can go like deeper and deeper and deeper into just, you know, solving one issue. Right. Sometimes it's like you're just kind of drowning in all this, like, for example, coding bugs. Then it's really important to like take a step back and remember, like, why did I start out at this position? What is the big goal that we're working towards? It's like the big uh, questions that we talked about here when it comes to, for example, planet formation. These big questions get answered through like decades of work. And one mm -hmm. PhD is just a tiny part of it all, putting like a little puzzle piece in there somewhere. Like all of these small contributions make up this really grand one research area, right? So it's just important to, to remember the overall goal and 
to be okay with sometimes getting distracted by a lot of smaller things on the way. But also I want to say that when applying to PhD positions, it shouldn't be only considered like what the candidate themselves can offer. We should also think what the position can offer us. For example, doing it abroad or doing it away from friends and family, then it's important to know that the department is supportive, that the supervisor would be supportive, and that the community would be nice to be part of. That is going to wrap up our interview. That was that went by so quick. And I just feel like I can talk to you for another hour. I do want to thank you so much, Maddie Elise, for being on the show today. And I'm definitely going to be following your career as it progresses. So go ahead and have a nice rest of your day. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you. And have a nice Sunday. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, goodbye. Okay, that was Maddie Lee Saru from the Southern European Space Observatory. In our next segment, we're going to be talking to astrochemist Dr. Eric T. Parker from the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. So we have a bit more ground to cover on the dirt on Earth. Welcome back to The Dirt on Earth, segment three, the final stretch. And we have covered nine billion years in like over a little over a half hour. The chemistry of life on Earth has been part of this entire narrative. I just have, it's been, what do they call it when something's been kind of like an undertone or it's been subtext? That's the, is that the word subtext? I think that's it. The atoms that make you didn't just materialize the day your dad got that certain twinkle in his eye. Your story started 13.8 billion years ago, so says the Big Bang Theory and the standard model of particle physics. So let's look at organic compounds up close. Carbon atoms are bonded with hydrogen atoms, and they often include nitrogen, oxygen, and what phosphorus, uh, sulfur, Organic compounds are what form as components to living organisms, proteins, DNA, carbohydrates, uh, lipids. And so anyway, what's so special about carbon? Why carbon? Well, most atoms are hydrogen by far. So these hydrogens are just running around looking to donate electrons. And carbon has four valence electrons that are quickly and easily paired with hydrogen. And these are very strong covalent bonds. Their fundamental structures, hydrocarbons, the very basic one being methane, the tetrahedral CH4. Carbon is nothing if not versatile. It makes not just hardy covalent bonds that are single bonds, but it also very easily attaches itself as double bonds, triple bonds. And so it forms compounds with any and every element, carbon, carbon chains, uh, those branch chains that seem to go in forever, the rings. And these very strong bonds store a tremendous amount of energy. There are certain things we take for granted. And you never think about it, but membranes are so freaking important because it's what keeps certain systems closed and you don't want it exchanging with other things. So carbon easily forms membranes. That's a big part of what keeps us alive. So this versatility and this strength is what makes it the reason life is so diverse, complex, and robust. If you look at the periodic table, you'll see that silicon sits right underneath it. It has four valence electrons too. Why aren't we silicon-based? Why aren't some of us silicon-based? Why aren't we looking around? Why don't we have pets that are silicon-based? Why aren't we pets of something that's silicon-based? 
the one answer really kind of has to do with that um, tendency to form the double and triple bonds. I'd actually, there's a couple answers, but I think that one's pretty strong because that versatility is important when you're talking about life. Again, we take so much of life for granted, but life has to really, really endure a lot being thrown at it. And if you cannot adapt, if you cannot uh, have large varieties of life forms, sort of like if you think about your your um your stock portfolio you know your financial advisor is always telling you to make sure you're diversified because what'll happen well if one industry goes kaput and all of your stuff is in that one industry then your whole financial life just went kaput so you want to make sure that you're immune to that that's taking a page right out of life's book uh, now what else so let me ask you a question have you ever tried to bake a cake simply by mixing dry ingredients and placing them into an oven I'm sure there's at least one quirky science teacher out there who's done just that for no other reason except to prove the point that I'm about to make. So this is going to bring us to water. Now, you might consider water the architect of life's chemistry. So we have all these ingredients, but we need to put them together and they need to be bound together in a special way. So you got water, H2O. It's a polar molecule. It's like like a tiny bar magnet. It's got a positive and a negative end, and it can attract and bond with other molecules. Prolific solvent conducts electricity. It drives a multitude of biological chemical reactions. What am I saying? It drives all of them. How is it that Earth is so abundant in these essential constituents of life? How was there a laser beam of life's chemistry just aimed right at this little tiny speck in the cosmos? Well, our instincts tell us that that doesn't sound feasible. And if that's the case, if it's not feasible, well, I guess it'd be the same as with all other chemical compounds. It's all been released into the interstellar medium over the eons. Organic molecules must enjoy the same ubiquity as all the other ones, right? So even the fact that this planet is weighed down with, oh, I love this stat, I love this stat here, 1,233.1 quintillion liters of water. That couldn't possibly have been the result of some cosmic favor done to one insignificant planet. Or were we actually really dealt the luckiest hand in the history of the cosmos? How do we even begin to answer these questions comprehensively? How do we derive satisfactory answers to what happened then to get us to where we are now? What are the missing links? One would imagine that you'd have to examine the oldest material. That's got to be vital. You've got to go back to the earliest things. And Earth itself isn't much help in that regard. She... I like to think of Earth this way. She likes to forget where she came from. You know what I mean? She likes to paint on a new face. She likes to dye her hair. She likes to alter her appearance too much. Luckily, luckily, though, she's got regular visits from some of her bucktooth cousins from back home with their uh, country drawls and dialects that clue us into her true roots, right? So I'm talking about meteorites, if you haven't figured that out yet. And the scientists who dedicate their lives to studying them tend to have a very strong affinity for a certain type of meteorites that are called chondrites. Chondrites are these stony meteorites whose um, their parent bodies are asteroids that formed in the very early solar system. 
If my stats here are right, 85% of all media rights are chondrites. But these are distinct because they contain these little grains that are called chondrules. And they have compositions and isotopic signatures revealing all the abundances and availability of materials for planet formation. And they're also valued because they have an appreciable content of what's called calcium aluminum inclusions. These are the most primitive and unaltered material in the solar system. Think of them as 4.6 billion year old sedimentary rocks. They are the oldest dated solids and therefore they're used as the official marker of T equals zero for the solar system. That is officially 4.567 billion years ago. This is a pre-recorded interview I did with Dr. Eric T. Parker. He's an astrochemist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, and he specializes in prebiotic chemistry, everything we really want to know about how ubiquitous are these building blocks of life, and did we just get Delta Lucky Hand. We recorded this interview like 48 hours before the touchdown of the OSIRIS-REx Bennu asteroid sample return. I cannot express my gratitude enough for him to take time out of such a busy moment of his life to talk to me. This was my interview with Dr. Parker. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Parker. I'm just going to jump right in with the million dollar question. Why is there life on Earth and not anywhere else in the solar system? The ability of the Earth to harbor life was probably different than other planets because of, in part, its location relative to the sun. Uh, so, for example, the next furthest away planet from the sun, Mars, is quite a bit colder. It can be negative 50 degrees Celsius on the surface, whereas the next closest planet to the sun is quite a bit hotter. And so Earth seems to be in this ideal spot in terms of temperature that's determined by how far away from the sun it is that allows it to be able to have and sustain liquid water. It's thought that liquid water may have been contributed to the early Earth by the influx of things like meteorites, comets that contain water, and then deposited them to the early Earth at or around the time of the origin of life. The presence of water is very good for chemical reactions of organic compounds that are important for life. So these would be things like amino acids, which have been nicknamed the building blocks of life, because they are the basic chemical subunit that make up proteins. The presence of liquid water and temperature can have a lot to do with the efficacy of organic chemical reactions to synthesize you know, very simple primitive proteins or, or primitive biomolecules important for life. So I think there are many factors at play that lead to Earth being ideal for the origin of life, but it does not necessarily exclude the possibility of life having originated elsewhere. Uh, in fact, that's a major point of emphasis in the field. So a lot of people are looking not just for life as we know it based on uh, terrestrial life in other parts of the solar system, but they're also looking for uh, signs of life as we do not know it in other parts of the solar system. Some type of life form that does not necessarily rely on nucleic acids like uh, DNA, for example, that hold genetic material. So there could be life elsewhere, and it's a big point of emphasis in the field, uh, whether it looks like life that we're familiar with or not. 
I went into meteorites and I was saying that they offer us a window into the early solar system conditions. So I would like for you to discuss briefly how meteorites are chemically analyzed to help us shed light on how the solar system forms. Sure. So meteorites are chemically analyzed through a variety of different ways. And some people will analyze their organic components. Some people will analyze their inorganic components here at the Astrobiology Analytical Laboratory at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. We are focused on the organic chemical composition of meteorites. And the way we analyze these chemically is through typically a combination of chromatography and mass spectrometry. Chromatography is an analytical technique that is used to help distinguish molecules from one another. You can think of chromatography as a metal tube, which is called a chromatography column. And on the inside of that column, there is a resin that adhered to the inside of the column. And that resin has a certain chemical composition uh, responsible for helping to separate molecules from one another through a, a physical and chemical compatibility process that can be simply distilled down to like interacts with like. So if you have a resin on the inside of the chromatography column that has a chemical composition of, we'll just call it some generic property known as A, you load your sample into the chromatography column and push it through the chromatography column. If there is a molecule in your sample that shares a similar chemical structure to that of the resin on the inside of the chromatography column, that molecule is more likely to interact more strongly with the resin. Let's say the converse, you have a molecule in your sample with chemical composition of B, and it's different than the chemical composition of the resin on the inside of the chromatography column. That molecule with composition B will be less likely to interact strongly with the chemical composition of the resin on the inside of the chromatography column. After they exit the chromatography column, they will be encountered by a detector that detects the presence of the molecule. The ones that hit the detector first interacted less strongly with the resin on the inside of the chromatography column. The analytes that hit the detector later tended to interact with the chromatography column more strongly. And so this process of separating molecules from one another is a very valuable process by which we can deconvolute the sample composition that we are looking at. Meteorites are typically very complex, and it is helpful for us to deconvolute those samples so it's easier for us to understand which molecules they're composed of, what the abundances of these molecules are, and try to get a, a better understanding of what the chemical composition of meteorites are. Another major process by which we analyze meteorites is through the use of mass spectrometers. And we have a variety of different mass spectrometers that perform different functions. So, for example, some of our mass spectrometers can provide a mass measurement that is accurate to, say, one decimal place. And then we have some mass spectrometers that can provide a mass measurement of an individual molecule that is accurate to four or five decimal places. The benefit of having a mass spectrometer that can give you a mass measurement that is accurate to four or five decimal places is that it can help you really lock in exactly what the mass is of that particular analyte. And by doing so, it gives you better accuracy in determining the specific identity of the molecule in question. 
we tend to use both of these in combination with one another. And so that is a snapshot of how we tend to analyze the meteorites chemically here at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Okay. And what specifically are you and your research team uh, looking for when you're analyzing these samples? We are looking for molecules that are considered to be important for life. And so these include molecules like amino acids, like I mentioned before, peptides. Peptides are intermediate molecules between amino acids and proteins. And then as peptides get larger and larger and larger and gain uh, an ability to fold, uh, that's a critical property of proteins once they begin to fold and they're, they're large enough to become proteins. So we are looking for amino acids. We're looking for peptides. We're also looking for other simple organic compounds that are important for life, things like alcohols, things like amines, things like cyanide. Uh, we tend to think of cyanide as something that is toxic to life, and it is at certain dosages, but cyanide can actually play a very important role at low concentrations in certain environments to help produce molecules that are important for life. Now, when you do receive this data, and let's say you are able to identify these building blocks of life, what are the implications? Like, what's the conclusion you can draw moving you forward to your sort of next evaluation? Yeah, it's a great question. So, we're interested not only in identifying these molecules, determining their abundances, we're also interested in understanding how they're formed, what types of environments these molecules can be formed in. Many meteorites originate from asteroids, uh, and so it can help inform us as to whether or not the asteroid was likely going through periods of its history where it was aqueously altered. Maybe there was water on the environment uh, of the asteroid where the chemicals we are analyzing in the meteorites were formed. Uh, it can help us to understand if that asteroid was likely to be thermally altered, meaning it was heated, leading to a change in the chemical composition of the meteorites that we eventually analyze. It helps us to understand what types of chemical synthesis could have taken place at the time of the formation of planets, at the time of the formation of the solar system. And it can help us to understand where in the solar system these types of organic compounds important for life could have been deposited. We think it's very likely that they were deposited to the early Earth at or around the time of the origin of life, roughly three and a half to four billion years ago. But it can give us an understanding of whether or not these same types of molecules could have been deposited to Mars, for example, or Jupiter or some other planetary body in the solar system. So it gives us a lot of information that we can use to make inferences and implications for chemical synthesis throughout the solar system and the potential for origin of life. Uh, elsewhere outside of Earth. Could you tell us about your research with the Ryugu meteorite sample? Yeah, so Ryugu, um, that was a project that we were involved with in collaboration with colleagues in Japan. Japan has an agency called the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, and they're very heavily involved in spaceflight missions like NASA is. They're very interested in understanding the origins of the solar system, understanding the origins of life. JAXA, as it's uh, known as an acronym, sent their own asteroid sample return mission. They used a spacecraft called Hayabusa 2, and they collected sample off of the surface of asteroid Ryugu and brought it back to Earth in December of 2020. And we were fortunate enough to have access to a small amount of sample, and we were interested in understanding the organic composition. We found that Ryugu has a number of different amino acids in them. And so there were a lot of very interesting organic compounds important for life that were found in asteroid Ryugu. And we hope to find similar molecules in 
uh, asteroid Bennu during uh, the OSIRIS-REx mission. All right. Well, that's a good time to bring up asteroid Bennu. What's going to be the approach with the Bennu samples? We're going to be very focused on the uh, organic composition of the asteroid itself. We'll be very excited to see what the results are. And we hope to share our results as soon as the first half of 2024. Papers that uh, overview the findings of our results, the approaches we took during sample preparation, and what the implications are that we can draw from understanding how organic compounds are made in outer space, where they can be transported throughout the solar system, and what the implications are for the potential for the origins of life. Okay, now given all of your research, all of your findings, in your own opinion, is the development of life such a simple process that it should just easily be spread out throughout the cosmos? Or is it so complex? Are there so many components that have to fall into place in a very particular way? that it's like threading a needle that has a really, really small hole, and you only get one shot to do it? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a, it's a challenging question because depending on who you ask, you might get a, a bunch of different perspectives on it. From my experience analyzing meteorites and asteroids looking for simple organic molecules that are important for life, I found that generating simple organic molecules important for life is fairly easy. It can be done at high pressure scenarios. It can be done in low pressure scenarios. It can be done at high temperature or low temperature scenarios. I tend to think that it's more likely that life exists somewhere outside of Earth than it is that life only exists in Earth, simply because the expansive nature of space is so great that I think to narrow ourselves down into thinking that life could have only existed on Earth is probably premature. I'm hopeful, and uh, uh, and so I think that at some point our search for life outside of Earth will turn fruitful. But until then, we'll we'll keep looking and keep pushing the boundaries of our limits of understanding the chemistry that exists outside of Earth and how it could have contributed to life either as we know it or as we do not know it. Um, Dr. Parker, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you giving me your time today. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate you giving me your time as well. You just heard from Eric Parker from the Astrobiology Analytical Laboratory at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And that's going to do it for this episode of The Dirt on Earth. Wow, we covered a lot of ground on this episode. And the next time we revisit this topic, we will have Earth assembled. Thank you for accompanying us on this journey. I'm Demetria Lynn, and you've been listening to The Dirt on Earth. Take care. <laughs>